also I'll mention this. Harris Secret has the has the best holiday uh, buffets there are. We were there for Thanksgiving, and we have a reservation for Christmas. Um, and the reason that I like them is the buffets aren't cheap, but they include all of the lobster you want to eat. Hello, and welcome to the Manifesto with Gideon, the frequent flyer on the Myelonomics Podcast Network. I am Gideon, the frequent flyer, and I'm joined today by Ted Fleischhaker, board member of Portland, Maine's Es Chaim Synagogue and publisher of the Up Portland newspaper. Ted, welcome to the Manifesto. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Uh, here on the Manifesto, we get our plugs in up top. So is there anything that... Uh, uh, you want people to know anywhere people can find you online or in real life? Well, they can find me two places online. Let's start there. Um, they can find our synagogue, which is what we're talking about for one thing today, by going to etime-portland.org, or they can find my newspaper, and they can read the whole paper online, but we also have what I call the Dead Tree Edition, which is print, and we can be found at up portland.com and you need both p's in there so it's up portland.com all together and um, you can also find me running around in the old port which is downtown portland because i live down here and i frequent all of the shops from mccucci's grocery store to some of the bookshops and you'll find me running around usually dressed in something weird i'm known for some of my outlandish jackets and i've got a hat that makes me look like a pineapple so i've got all kind of weird things i wear i love it so we met each other um in the um actually probably better for you to describe it was it in the um synagogue or in the shul or in the building of the etzheim uh facility it's all the same thing because the uh, museum and the uh, synagogue occupy the building together um, at the corner of India and uh, Congress Streets in Portland. And I work as a docent up there a couple of days a week when I don't have anything better to do. Um, and up Portland being a monthly newspaper, I find that I quite often have an afternoon or a little time to spare. I'm generally up there on Monday uh, in the evening and I'm up there on Sunday afternoons. But I attend services quite often on Saturday, and, oh, we have some Torah studies and all kind of things we do. But you caught me up there when I was uh, doing some of my uh, docent work, and I take deep pride in showing people our building and telling them about the synagogue. Yeah, so you were telling us about some pretty serious renovations that had taken place um, that had closed the synagogue for quite a while. Is that right? Yep. We were already closed for COVID um, a year ago in March, and... Two months later, a fire broke out behind the uh, ark up on the main sanctuary floor and burnt up one wall and damaged uh, the ark, the Torahs, as well as the stained glass window that is behind there. Um, the resulting sprinklers and the full blast fire department hoses for an hour caused part of the floor to collapse and a lot of damage. And when the city came in to talk to us about what we needed to do to get a permit to reopen, they were kind of like, oh, we never really realized the fact that you still have wiring that's original to this building, and that would be wiring dating to 1921. So um, essentially, we had to pull every wire out of the building, top to bottom, 
have it all rewired, have light fixtures rewired or replaced, and some of both. And at the end of the day, I think the elevator, which was just a year old, was about the only wiring that got to stay. Everything else from the lamp in the rabbi's office to the uh, chandeliers that are in the main sanctuary had to either be rewired or replaced. And you mentioned that the um, the women's section of the synagogue had been closed or relocated during that period? or Well, that's actually before. I mean, just to give you just a quick history... The building was actually not built as a synagogue. It was built in the 1880s um, as part of a rebuild that was done of that entire area of Portland. Um, a lot of people outside this area don't know it, but the um, city virtually burned to the ground on the 4th of July of 1866. They were having a uh, big celebration of the one-year anniversary of the end of the Civil War. A young man's firework landed in a bale of hay. And it was a windy, dry summer's day, and it burnt all the way up through downtown, through the area that we these days call the Old Port. <clears throat> and at the end of the day, we uh, lost about 50 to more percent, 50 to 60 or more percent of the buildings that were existing in Portland. Um, when it was over, there were huge swathes of ruins and vacant ground because most of the old buildings had been wood. Um, so starting in the 18, late 1860s and then going beyond, they slowly replaced the buildings. The building that replaced the burnt-down one at our location actually was not a synagogue at all, but it was a boarding house. Um, we're located on the uh, side of Munjoy Hill, which is literally a hill, not a mountain. And the top had a huge Jewish community, so much so that it was known as Munju Hill, the bottom of the hill, which is roughly where I happen to live now, was a huge Italian community and the Macucci Italian Grocery, which has been in the same building since 1931, still exists right across the street from my house. And in between was a immigrant community, a lot of Irish especially. And the boarding house that they were living in is the building that in 1921 became our synagogue um, how it became that is kind of interesting. The um, synagogue, there's a synagogue built in 1904 down the block. It's just off India Street on um, Newbury Street, um, and that would be Sherry Tafila Synagogue. And they uh, had a fight in the early 1920s over whether they should keep the services and everything in that language they had used called Yiddish or the switch to that modern language called English. Things got so acrimonious at one point from the history we've read, the rabbi's chair was taken from the pulpit and placed in the bathroom to show contempt. And anyway, when it all settled down, the English group lost. So a bunch of them came up, spent around $50,000, um, remodeling the building, which they had already purchased, and turned the building into what you saw when you got there. Um, there were a few things that had been added along the way, but the building has an interesting history after that, because what happened was after World War II, a lot of the Jews in this part of town decided to either not come back to Maine at all, you know, the old thing about after you've seen the rest of the world, and um, they left Portland and Maine, and the ones that did come back wanted to live in modern areas of what I would call the suburbs. So when things were all finished, said and done, the congregation, which started in 1921 with around 
290 members, at one point got down to under 100. So the balcony, which had been where the women sat, because the women and men in Orthodox synagogues do not sit together, um, was filled in with a false ceiling. And the front window, which is a beautiful stained glass, was bricked in from the uh, outside. And they didn't, therefore, have to heat the top part of the building. They put a, um, a border down the middle of the main floor, <clears throat> and one side was the men's side and one was the women's side. Um, and it, they kept decreasing, though, in population over and over until sometime in the mid to late 1970s, there were only about 15 members left. So there was a big debate on what to do. They could either sell the building and would ultimately have been torn down and something built in its place, or they could hang on, or they could merge with another congregation. And the congregations in that area, at one point there were five of them within a few blocks. Most of them um, are gone. In fact, they all are now. Um, Sherry Tefila moved to the suburbs and ultimately went away. Adas Israel, that's gone. And she's fired. There's a parking lot there now. So what ended up happening was so many of these old historic synagogues vanished. It was decided that ours was worthy of preserving. So it became a museum, and a museum foundation was established. They took over the building. The congregation, for a couple of dollars a year, rents the building back. So we still have services. We still have a rabbi. We still have all of the things that a Jewish congregation has. But the building also houses several art galleries, one on the first floor and one on the third, and the building also is leased out for different events. So, for example, the Ponte String Quartet plays their Portland season in our building because we have wonderful acoustics in our main sanctuary. Um, our, uh, our fence on the front of the, uh, uh, the gate on the front of the, the pulpit is designed so that it can be lifted up and taken out, and that allows for things to be put up there that are part of those uh, rental shows. So, for example, the Box Society a few weeks ago brought a whole harpsichord in and put it up there and did Bach harpsichord concerti. Um, and if you went to services the week after, you would never have known. It was brought in, used, taken out, and the, uh, the, gateway, the gate put back up. So it's designed to allow things like that. The congregation, however was still having problems through the 70s, 80s, and 90s until it was decided that they would become no longer orthodox but egalitarian. We have some gay members, some straight members, some black members, some white members, some mixed families where one spouse might be Christian and one Jewish, a combination of you name it. As a result of all of that, it's wonderful because our, our population has grown. We now have 300 families on our, our rolls, we have three services a week at the synagogue. We have one on Monday evening that's a very short Orthodox minion, we call it. Um, we have a Friday night uh, reform, very liberal uh, Friday evening service. It's just about 45 minutes at 6 o'clock. And then on Saturday morning, we have a two-hour uh, Orthodox, but not fanatically so, service where we get out one of the Torahs and read it, and we do all of the ceremonial things that, are part of a Jewish service. So we have a little bit of everything, but because everybody is welcome, all of a sudden families and single people and everybody is finding us again, 
and our uh, rentals of the building, as well as the art that are in the galleries that we have in there selling, um, mean that we don't have to have any dues. You know, most congregations have dues that people have to pay. We don't have any. So you can be a member for free, which a lot of people find very, very much to their liking. Ted, let me interrupt you just to ask a lot of questions that uh, my listeners right now are definitely asking themselves. Um, so y- you've explained a little bit about the history of the uh, congregations um in the 20th century, but um, w- what is the origin of the Jewish community in Maine in, in the way that uh, people know about the Irish famine driving uh, Irish uh, immigrants to New York or uh, Puerto Ricans to uh, their own communities in New York? Um, is, is there a story behind why uh, Maine has such a strong Jewish community? Well, the Jewish community here started and stopped and then restarted. Um, There was record of a congregation as early as the 1830s in Bangor, which is the second largest city in Maine, and it's about 120 miles north of Portland in the middle of the state. Um, The Bangor congregation disappeared uh, very suddenly um, around 1840s, and nobody actually knows for 100% sure why. The um, supposition has always been, and that I've always heard and I've always read, it's because there was a banker in Bangor, say that fast, who was anti-Semitic, and he declined to give loans and work with the Jewish community there. And that meant the community had to go elsewhere. So the congregation that was there in Bangor folded, and those people moved elsewhere, not to Portland, but nobody really knows where. Um, it went away. So for a few years, there really wasn't uh, much in the way of congregational life here. It came back after the Civil War and went from there. But the answer to your question is it mostly was European Jews, both Eastern and Western European. Uh, So we're talking about places like Slovakia, Poland, uh, as well as Germany, um, Spain, France. But the ones that started at Taim were Eastern European. So that would mean Poland and that area of uh, Europe. Um, That's why we have a rather unique design. Uh, with our pulpit in two parts. What's the, sorry, Ted, what's the significance of that, having the pulpit in two parts? Well, it's there because the Torah had its own pulpit, and the Torah still does at our congregation. But to read the Torah, you have to take it to the reading table, which is on the other pulpit. So you actually take the Torah out of the ark, you say the blessings, and you march around the, the synagogue as it's done while you chant the blessings, And then when you're finished with that, you go to the reading table, which is on the other pulpit, open the Torah and read it. So it's two different, two different pieces, but they're not connected. If you go to a reform or most conservative congregations, they have one central pulpit that does both things. We don't. Let me ask you, uh, before we, before we finish up on the Jewish community in Maine, um, I wanted to ask you what, uh, Jewish traditions look like today in Portland or in Bangor or Maine um, if somebody is in Maine for the High Holy Days um, what should they look for what should they expect <clears throat> well at present we have 8,000 Jews in what we call Southwest Maine that's that's this area 
that we live in, that's Portland, that's Lewis and Auburn, uh, the county just south of us, which is York County. And the uh, Jewish community here is very vibrant. Um, Portland has four synagogues, a Chabad house, a reform synagogue, Beth Ham. We have a conservative uh, synagogue, and that's Temple Bethel. And we have our synagogue at Saim. If you go just a few miles in any direction, you will find a, a small town or city that does have its own synagogue. So there is one in Lewiston. There's one just south of here in Old Orchard Beach. There's another one in Biddeford and Saco. And then there's a very cool one that I find very cool in Bath, Maine, which is north of here, about 35 miles. Um, they all are served in various ways by various clergy. So, for example, we have a full-time rabbi. Um, the other synagogues here in Portland have full-time rabbis. Um, if you go up to Bath, they share a rabbi with Waterville, which is up on the other side. So there's various things that are done in different ways to make all the ends meet. Um, but the synagogues here in Maine are very, very, very active. Um, and we have a, small a Center for Small Town Jewish Life, which is based in Waterville. Um, and it's kind of, they do some really interesting classes and studies about Judaism in small towns, which Maine is full of. I mean, you know, everybody thinks Portland might be a big city. Our metro area is close to a half a million people. But the city only has got 67,000 people. So it's not very big at all. Not at all. I wanted to ask you just because it happened um, while, while we happened to be in town and met you um, that you're um... – full-time rabbi had a COVID case? Um... He did indeed. He did. He um, he got COVID, and it was a mild case, but of course it kept him off the pulpit for uh, the better part of three weeks. And um, we muddled through. Um, the services continued all the way through the whole epidemic because pandemic because we went on Zoom pretty quickly. Um, and even to this day, most services are both on Zoom and in person. Um, Rabbi likes to have a minion, which is 10 people. We count women and men, but 10 people at the service before he'll do certain prayers. Um, so like last Saturday morning, there were 14 of us sitting in the synagogue, and there was four on Zoom. Total, 18 people attended. But last Friday night, there was one person in the sanctuary and there were nine people on Zoom, ten people. That's a minion, not counting the rabbi, which made eleven. But so we we do that. But the rabbi um, is very cautious. Um, he actually did a bar mitzvah the weekend before he was diagnosed. And he let the family know that he was um, uh, not feeling his best and that he was getting a test again. Uh, he had one that came back negative, so they took a chance and he did the service. And then two days later, was diagnosed. Um, as far as he knows and we know, uh, no, it wasn't spread and no one else came down with it from him being sick. Um, it's never a good idea to be sick, but he handled it really, really well. And as far as I know, we have had very few other cases. Uh, we do uh, wear our masks in the, in the sanctuary. Um, we're even doing the small services upstairs in the main hall because the main hall is larger and the main hall has got um, the ability for us to be able to be uh, very socially distanced. We can fit 300 people in up there. 
So if we have 14 people for services, as you can imagine, um, we can stay very, 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 very far apart and still hear and take part. So we try really, really hard as best we can. We try really hard to be able to uh, continue to have services each week. And the people who either are afraid to to come because they're worried about the um, uh, they're worried about COVID or they're worried about something going on, whatever. Um, all of those people can attend online, and they can still be part of the service. So we try to include everyone in all of our events. That's fantastic. Um, so moving on, um, you're also the uh, publisher of the Up Portland uh, newspaper about uh, Portland, Maine. And one of the things that was most striking to me um, while we were visiting is just how many local newspapers there were. It seemed like uh, every, every island had its own newspaper and there were uh, individualized uh subject matter papers about the lobster boat races and things like that. Um, so I want to take the opportunity to ask you how Portland, Maine or Maine in general supports so many newspapers with uh, so many uh, diverse subject matters. Um, the big thing I found when I moved here, which was only six and a half years ago, is that people up here still read Maine has the oldest population uh, in the entire country, even older than Florida. They're number two behind us. Because our population tends to be older, a lot of us old folks enjoy reading on paper. I will confess, I read the New York Times, the Washington Post, and even the Times of London on my computer. But I get three newspapers delivered to my door every morning. And um, you can get all of the New York papers, the Boston papers, and, of course, local papers, all of them are available on newsstand or at the, at the door if you happen to subscribe. So that means that we have a really unique situation, whereas most people struggle to get one a shadow of a newspaper because I moved here from Indianapolis, and Gannett owns the Indianapolis Star. It's a shadow of the paper that was there when I moved there 25 years before. Um, you know, there's just a very few pages. There's very little news. There's very little anything in there because it's just less and less and less space um, because the advertisers are not supporting it. Here in Maine, we still have very good advertiser support. What does that advertiser support look like? Is that um, local listings for um, obituaries or um, announcements of uh, foreclosure sales? What does that advertising structure look like? It's a little bit of everything. Um, we don't carry obituaries in mind, so that's we're just a monthly paper. To, we, we call ourselves the downtown newspaper or the peninsula newspaper because downtown, the middle of the city here, is on a peninsula sticking into Casco Bay. So consequently, we try to keep our area limited. I think the papers that are out here, I'll try to keep their areas limited, but many of the papers have the same owner, and I won't will lie to you, COVID has been tough on some papers. I've been very lucky. We basically have come out unaffected. I'm running no less advertising right now than I was before COVID hit, which is very fortunate. But like, for example, there was a paper that served the northern suburbs here, places like Falmouth and Yarmouth and that area up there, the northern suburbs of the city. And it was called the Notes. And the Notes did not make it out of the 
the backside of COVID. The notes is out of business. Um, a lot of papers combined with each other or combined elsewhere. And the company that owns the Press Herald, which is the daily here, um, with Maine Today Media, uh, they own a lot of the newspapers in the state. But they, again, have a local owner here in Maine. They're not owned by some conglomerate out of Chicago or New York or Los Angeles. They're local. And the biggest thing that I think is a plus for us here in Maine, and I, I don't want to be um, – I don't want to be rude about it, but I'll be honest about it. And that is, um, we don't have a single Gannett paper here in the state of Maine. Um, as you know, Gannett is, you know, the biggest newspaper company that exists. And the problem with Gannett is that whenever you have a big outside corporation trying to run the show on anything, it doesn't, doesn't really matter what the hell it is, you end up with that corporation's executive offices making a decision. Well, Gannett, last I looked, I think they moved, but they were based in, in Virginia just outside of uh, Washington, D.C. Well, if you were going to get anything through Gannett, it had to come through. Where else? At the home office. And if the home office didn't like what you were doing, they would either change it or they wouldn't wouldn't buy your paper and you'd go broke. So, so many of the papers in cities that I know well are not the papers they used to be, the uh, Best example is Gannett now owns the Louisville Courier Journal. They own the Indianapolis Star, the Cincinnati um, Inquirer, as well as the Nashville uh, Tennessean, and the Evansville Courier and Press, and the Lafayette, Indiana Journal and Courier, and I could go on and on and on. But all of those are in a chunk of the Midwest, all adjacent to each other. Well, when Gannett came in and snapped them all up a few at a time and brought out families, they either cut the staffs back, so one person in Chicago, say, is laying out five newspapers. They don't have their own layout person in each city. So if you look at all of them, you'll see something that looks somewhat of a carbon copy and a shadow of its former self. You also have another disadvantage, and that is they cut back the amount of money they want to spend on local news gathering. So the number of reporters that are in Louisville, for example, isn't the number that were there 10 years ago when the Bingham family owned the paper. And they've, they've turned the cap off on a lot of things that were costly and honorable, but were expensive. So, for example, I was thinking about this the other day. I can't name one city that still has an afternoon paper in the United States. London does, but New York, they have three morning papers. They don't have an afternoon paper anymore. Um, a lot of the papers that used to be PMs, which I'm very fond of afternoon papers, are long gone. Those afternoon papers no longer exist. So uh, I wanted to ask this is a question that I'm sure a lot of people have um, since these papers in Maine are locally owned, what goes into publishing a paper, whether it's daily, weekly, or monthly? Is there a literal printing press in Maine that you can uh, submit um, the sheets to and they'll r run off a monthly paper for you? Do you deliver them by USPS? Do you have uh, paper boxes on the streets? I know I picked up my copy of Up Portland at the synagogue, but how is how is Up Portland uh, 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 written, printed, and distributed. Uh, just tell me everything. First of all, the 
a lot of the printing has been centralized and is done by the daily, the Press Herald here in, in Portland. So they're actually South Portland is where their printing center is. Um, so they print the Bangor paper, the Portland paper. They print a lot of the weeklies and a lot of the monthlies. Up here in Maine, they print the uh, Brunswick paper, which is a daily. Um, but the other thing is you can, because New England states are small, Remember, this isn't Montana, Wyoming, or Washington State where you can drive for miles and not pass a town or a person. Um, I can drive five hours and pass through, uh, you know, five major cities between here and New York, and that includes Boston. So there's a lot of printing presses in different towns up here that will contract. Right now we're printing up Portland in Concord, New Hampshire, at the Concord Monitor. Uh, when I first started it, I was printing it in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, um, at Seacoast Media's plant down there at the Portsmouth Herald. Um, we moved for two reasons. One, because the print job was not as good as what I wanted most months, and because Gannett bought the Portsmouth paper. A family still owns the Concord paper. Um, and the word local comes to mind, and it did when you were asking the question. Um, I think everything local works. So, or at least it does up here. So, you know, who are my advertisers? Easy. They're the grocery store across the street, the Italian grocery, Mucucci's, where I go shop. The Pat's Meat Market, where I go in old-fashioned style. I buy meat there. They don't sell, you know, they don't sell uh, anything weird. They sell meat, chicken, <laughs> fish. No, no fish, just chicken and meat. Because if I want fish, I go down to Harbor Fish Market. They don't sell any meat or chicken. They sell fish. They're on the dock. So if I'm going to go somewhere and buy something, they know me by name. They know me when I walk through the door. It's small town in that respect. Downtown Portland, everybody pretty much knows everybody. So if I want donuts, I walk up to Hi-Fi Donuts and I get them. If I want fish, I go to Harbor Fish Market. Well, all of those people know me because they see me come through the door. So they also know what I do. And so if... I need an advertiser for something or some special project I'm doing. I know who to call. So, like, we have the only surfing column in New England. Um, I have a monthly surfing column. It's in uh, Portland every month. It's written by two young men who went to Bates College here in Maine. One still lives in Maine, and the other has gone down to North Carolina to get his graduate degree in oceanography and um, uh, oceanographic studies. Well, they still write the surfing column, but we need an advertiser. So we had one from down south of us in uh, Scarborough for a little while, and when they said they weren't going to continue because they didn't think it got them enough business, I approached Maine Surfers Union, and Charlie, who owns that, signed up, and we now have it sponsored. Um, why? Because I, I'm not a surfer. I used to try, but I never was any good at it. But I go in there because he sells a really cool selection of surfing T-shirts and mugs and all kind of fun things. And I give an awful lot of gifts at Christmas time and Hanukkah time. And so he knows me from coming in. Hi-Fi Donuts. I don't eat very many donuts, but they have an awesome chicken sandwich at lunchtime. So they know me from coming in the door. Um, I have a newsstand downtown that distributes the papers and advertises. They know me because I walk in the door quite frequently just to get a copy of the Financial Times or the New York Times. If the people know you, they're very likely here to do business with you. 
And if the other side of the coin is looked at, they also are happy, even if they're not doing any business, to distribute your papers. So, for example, there's a co-op grocery store that's right across the street from the synagogue. Um, and they know me in the co-op. I go in there quite often on Friday to pick up a challah to go with my Shabbos dinner on Friday night. So I asked them, and they said, of course. There's a rack with up Portland right in the entrance. And we stock that rack up and keep it neat and clean. We share the rack with several other small publications. But up Portland is in there because they know me, and they know that I come in there almost every Friday and what I buy almost every Friday. So it's all a matter of personal service. If if we had a you know if we were having to deal with a big corporation out of you know South Succotash, it would be a totally different ballgame. But when we have our locals, our people right here in town that know us, you know, and this is when we moved here six and a half years ago. After a couple of months, somebody back in Indiana said to me, "Well, how much different is it? What's it like there?" And my immediate answer to them was. Think Europe. And they're like, what do you mean? And I said, I could take a shopping bag. Uh, uh, I can't take a plastic one because they're not allowed in Maine anymore. But I can take my reusable shopping bag and go walking down the street on a Friday afternoon, and I can pick up a hollow to go with my dinner. I can pick up fish, lobster, meat at one of two or three places down here. I can pick up, you know, any sort of desserts. Go buy Two Fat Cats Bakery and get a pie. Um, and all of these are places that have won all sorts of awards for their food and what they do and how they do it, but they're all local. And I take that shopping bag and walk around just like you would if you were in Amsterdam or somewhere in the north of England, not in London because that's just another big city. But if you if you think about that, I can't think of very many towns or cities anywhere that on foot you can walk around and get all of the things that you would buy for your meal or for your for your day. I mean, it's all there and it's all available and it's all available, you know, right on the spot, which I think yeah. is totally unique. Yeah, that's that's a really great point that uh even even in places that don't advertise in the paper are still advertising the paper when they're distributing it and uh and handing it out to create that uh that kind of presence uh throughout the community. I try really hard, and I think it's also really important because here's here's what I'll say. You know, I have friends who live in, in all over the country and all over the world, actually. Um, I taught for a while years ago at the University of Louisville, and um, one of my students now lives in Serbia. I mean, I former students. I mean, I talk to people from all over, well, and know people all over. My assistant actually lives in uh, uh, Amsterdam now, my old assistant. But the point I'm trying to make is simply this. So many of the people still don't know the people in their own hometown. If you don't know the people in your own hometown, then you can't expect you to, you can't expect any special service or treatment. But if they know who I am when I walk through the door, I don't have to ask. They know, you know, what I'm looking for. When I walk into uh, uh, Two Fat Cats, they know that our favorite pie to have here is their New England bog. And New England is is just a very unique um, microcosm of what you might see or have seen, rather, in the 30s, 40s, and 50s in the whole country. 
the, the downside of that, though, is there's some things that we just don't have. Like, for example, we do have um, we do have a BJ's, but we don't have a Costco because Costco isn't here. Um, when I was out in the Midwest, I like to go to the German supermarket uh, called Aldi. There is no Aldi in Maine. Um, the positive side of that is there are not a lot of weird, racist, crazy religious people running around here like, like elsewhere. So, for example, there's not a lot of – there's a to, some total of one um, a Hobby Lobby in Maine, you know, they were the people that are homophobic and did all of the managing to screw around with uh, screw around with uh, help for people who wanted um, abortions and went all the way to the Supreme Court to win their case a few years ago. A lot of people aren't here. Some that I really miss and some that I'm really glad we don't have. I mean, they just made a big hoo-ha. We just got the first ever Chick-fil-A in Maine. About a month and a half ago. Uh, all right, Ted. I want to be solicitous of your time, so I want to uh, get to uh, the next section where we can just do a rapid fire uh, question <laughs> session for first time visitors to Portland, because it was uh, my partner and I's first visit to uh, Portland and to Maine. So I want to get some rapid fire recommendations from you about first, uh, where to stay. We stayed at the Hyatt downtown. It was fine. Is there uh, the perfect place to stay in Portland and Maine um, that you love more than anywhere else? Yep, it depends what you, but it depends what you're looking for. And I tell people this when they ask. <clears throat> pardon me for restaurants and for all sorts of things. Anything and everything has its own. Everybody doesn't wear the same pair of jeans. Some people like them loose. Some people like them tight. Some people roll up the bottom. Some people don't roll up the bottom. All right, this was this is a rapid fire. This is a rapid fire session. You got to say where your favorite place to stay in Portland is. <laughs> My favorite place to stay. In Portland would be the Eastland Hotel. Eastland is actually a Westland now. We, the joke is it's the Eastland Westland. It um, was built in the 1920s. It is a very, very fancy, if it's a Westland, it has to be, hotel with a wonderful bar on the roof. All right. Second, uh, where, what to eat? Everyone wants the perfect lobster roll. I had two lobster rolls in Portland. One was absolutely magical the second was inedible and i threw it out where is the perfect lobster roll or whatever else uh, the perfect dish uh, is well i hope i'm not going to recommend the one you threw out but my favorite is i drive across the bridge to south portland and i go to a place called docks d-o-c-k apostrophe s docks seafood in south portland at the corner of broadway and evans streets they have awesome everything. Keep in mind the fact that lobster has gone way up in price this year um, because you can blame the pandemic for that. And also, if you want to know something else, there's a restaurant called Street and & Company, and it is owned by a fellow whose name is Dana Street. Um, they have an awesome, awesome lobster dinner called In the Pan. It's a copper pan with wonderful um, linguine in it and a garlic butter sauce, and then they take a lobster and slice it horizontally and open it up so you don't have to work to eat it, and it is absolutely wonderful. 
All right, next, what to see while you are in Maine? You're in Maine for a weekend. What do you have to see? Well, everybody has to, everybody has to go out to Portland Head Light, which is out in Fort Williams Park uh, from downtown Portland. That's about a 15-minute ride. Um, so you've got to go out there and see the light. It's supposedly the most photographed lighthouse in the world. If you have time to run around Maine and go further from that, well, I recommend strongly that you go up to Bar Harbor and see Acadia, which is the only national park in Maine. And Bar Harbor is a beautiful little town. Um, it's very seasonal, but it's neat. Um, if you want to uh, combine a couple of things together, a lot of people swear by the lobster rolls in season and town in season. There's a town just north of here called Wiscasset, and there's a place there called Red's Eats, and it's very famous. Uh, they have a Facebook page and tell you when they're going to open and when they're going to close, and um, they're, I think they're overpriced, but it's nice, and it's a town full of neat little shops. There's one I love that sells all kind of stuff called Rock, Paper, Scissors, which is a great name for a shop, too. But anyway, um, I like to go up to Wiscasset. I also like to go to Damariscotta. And south of here, my recommendation is please don't miss uh, Kennebunk and Kennebunkport. They're actually two towns. They're about a, two miles apart. The port is obviously on the water, and Kennebunk is inland two miles. Um, they were made famous, of course, by that's where George Bush, the first George Bush, had his compound, and the buildings are still standing. Uh, his son, who was also president later, um, is still there sometimes in the year. And you can drive by and look, and but you can't touch. And if security is uh, out front, then you know that the former president is in residence. Uh, so when we were deciding where to go in Maine, we were uh, basically flipping a coin between uh, the two airports in Portland and Bangor. So, Ted, Portland or Bangor? Portland has... Much more service, especially nonstop. Uh, we have a lot of nonstop to Florida. We have nonstop now to Indianapolis. But we also have nonstop to Chicago and Detroit and some of those hubs like Baltimore, Washington. And you can make it a lot easier and you'll find competitive fares. All right. So during the pandemic, Ted, uh, we've been finishing every episode with our core question of the week. Are you ready for this week's question? Let's have it. For folks who are thinking of taking a socially distanced winter getaway during Omicron in Maine this New Year's, what's your go-to romantic nook in the state? Whether it's an island or a uh, isolated fireplace somewhere or uh, whatever uh, means romance for you, what, uh, where, where should people be going this New Year's? Well, go to Bar Harbor if you want because the hotels give you wonderful deals and have a lot of rooms. Um, after the leaves have fallen, which they have done because there's snow today. Or there's a few really neat little places here and there that you would probably like. Um, there was a hotel that I stayed at opening day five years ago in the town of Rockland. It's wonderful. You can walk the breakwater and look out over the ocean, which this time of year is kind of a very misty, fun thing to see. And it's called the 250 Main Hotel. Um, keep in mind the fact that a lot of the places I would normally recommend to you are not open in the middle of the winter because after season, between a lack of help and a lack of customers, they just close. And that's places like Black Point Inn just outside Portland. Uh, they close at the end of October and will open again in May. All right. Thanks again to Ted 
Flyshaker, for joining me today. You've been listening to The Manifesto with Gideon, the frequent flyer on the Myelonomics Podcast Network. Goodbye and good luck.